Hey guys, welcome to Precision Nutrition's The Complete Fitness Professional Podcast. I'm Dr. John Berardi, co-founder of Precision Nutrition, and if you're not familiar with us, over the last 15 years, we've become the world's largest online nutrition, fitness, and health coaching company. Most interesting for health and fitness pros, we've turned the lessons learned coaching over 200,000 clients into a complete nutrition and health coaching system called the Precision Nutrition Certification. It's the industry's most recognized career-changing coaching system anywhere. In this podcast, which is a mix of recorded articles, interviews, and roundtable discussions, myself and my Precision Nutrition colleagues will coach you on growing your business, helping more people, and becoming a better coach. We'll help you become more than a personal trainer, strength coach, or nutritionist. We'll help you become the complete fitness professional. So let's get started. Today we're here to chat about the paleo diet, right? The good, the bad, and the ugly of it, the pros and the cons. As fitness professionals, clients ask about it, right? Family and friends question you about it. Maybe you've even tried it or you follow it yourself. Quite frankly, it's a cool story that captures the imagination. But is it healthy and does it work? That's what we'll explore today. First, let's tease out what the paleo diet actually is. The paleo or primal diet is based on two central ideas. One, we've adapted to eat particular kinds of foods. And two, to stay healthy, strong, and fit and avoid the chronic diseases of modern life, we need to eat and live like our paleolithic ancestors. Let's look at a brief history of eating. Right? Our oldest cousins, the earliest primates, lived more than 60 million years ago. And just like most primates today, they subsisted mainly on fruit, leaves, and insects. About two and a half million years ago, at the dawn of the Paleolithic era, right, things began to change. Our early human ancestors started rocking the opposable thumb and developing bigger brains. They began to use stone tools and fire, and as a result, slowly changed their diet. By the time truly modern humans came on the scene about 50,000 years ago, our ancestors were eating an omnivorous hunter-gatherer diet. Then about 10,000 years ago, the world underwent what is called the Neolithic Revolution, right? Which was the development of farming and agriculture and kind of took the whole world by storm. We'll touch on the development of this in a little bit. Let's talk about the basic paleo diet first. Okay, prior to the Neolithic Revolution, we were eating a Paleolithic diet in some form or fashion for several hundred thousand to maybe even two million years. This includes animals like meat, fish, reptiles, insects, and usually most parts of the animals, including organs, bone marrow, cartilage, right? Animal products, things like eggs or honey, roots and tubers, leaves, flowers, and stems, in other words, vegetables, fruits, as well as nuts and seeds that could be eaten raw. So here's a somewhat modern version of what that might have looked like, right? You had various vegetables, right? Tart fruits, because the sweet fruits we know today didn't exist. Wild meats, right? No domesticated animals were actually eaten in the Paleolithic. They didn't exist. Raw nuts, right? Eggs from various animals. And maybe some healthy fats. They're probably not a whole lot of oils. Okay, when you compare that to what most people eat today, it's easy, easy to see why this approach not only appeals to people, but also works, right? One focuses on whole foods, lots of protein, lots of produce, and some healthy fats. It's a pretty good start right there. Our diet today is made up of mostly processed foods, lots of sugar and refined carbs, fats, and sodium, right? But a bad modern diet doesn't necessarily mean that our modern paleo diet has all of the answers, right? That's a logical fallacy. And there's some critical assumptions, right? 
proponents of the paleo diet make some of these assumptions, let's dig into them a little bit. For example, it's often stated that Paleolithic man was robust and healthy, okay, and that the shift to the Neolithic period in agriculture and farming resulted in sicker, shorter, and less robust humans, right? And that modern hunter-gatherers still living a Paleolithic lifestyle are all healthy, and their health declines when they switch to a modern diet. What does the evidence actually say? Okay, what the evidence actually shows is that while a case can be made for this evolutionary trend, as a matter of fact, hunter-gatherers were not pristine models of health, right? We don't have medical records of ancient humans, but we do certainly know they harbored various parasites. They were subject to many infectious diseases. That was the number one cause of death, right? With more than half not making it past their 15th birthday, okay? And this continues for even some modern-day modern, modern day hunter-gatherers. For example, the Hiwi. Okay, they're a small hunter-gatherer tribe in South Africa. They get about 95% of their food from hunting and gathering and foraging. They live on things like deer, anteaters, armadillos, fish and turtles, as well as a variety of plant foods like root vegetables, palm nuts, fruits and legumes. They are not healthy people. Okay? They suffer from parasitic hookworms, are malnourished, complain of hunger, and are often thin and sickly. Even today, only half of their children live past 15. Following a paleo diet and lifestyle is clearly not enough to guarantee them good health. Okay. However, there are more surviving hunter-gatherer groups than just the Hiwi. Let's take a closer look at one of the most studied groups, okay? the residents of Kitava Island off Papua New Guinea. They're probably the most famously researched modern hunter-gatherer population. And according to Dr. Staffan Lindeberg, who has extensively studied their habits, Kitavans live exclusively on starchy root vegetables like yam, sweet potato, taro, fruit, banana, papaya, pineapple, mango, etc., vegetables, fish and seafood, and coconuts. Ketovans are healthy and robust. They're free of obesity and disease, uh, diabetes, heart attacks, stroke, and acne, despite the fact that actually most of them smoke, right? When looking at the ketovans as an example, things are looking better for eating the Paleolithic-style diet. Okay, but beyond the ketovans and the Hiwi, there was a recent study in The Lancet that was really interesting. It looked at 137 mummies from societies ranging all over the world from Egypt, Peru, the American Southwest, and the Aleutian Islands to search for signs of atherosclerosis in ancient man. They noted probable or definitive atherosclerosis in 47 of the 137 mummies from all four geographical regions, regardless whether they had been farmers or hunter-gatherers, peasants or societal elite. All got hardening of the arteries no matter what their lifestyle. Okay, location did not matter. In fact, the hunter-gatherers of the Aleutian Islands actually had the highest prevalence of atherosclerosis, with 60% of their mummies having evidence of it. Okay? So, although atherosclerosis may be a common human experience no matter what, the diseases of affluence today, right, obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, have gone up dramatically in industrialized countries over the past 50 years, especially compared to non-industrialized populations. Over the last century, a period that is undoubtedly far too short for significant genetic adaptation, industrialization and technology have radically changed the way we eat and live. Today, the average individual in Western countries subsists on foods that are packaged and commercially prepared, as we saw earlier. Rich in refined starches and sugars, highly processed fats and sodium, these foods are designed to be so delicious that they run roughshod over the body's normal fullness signals and encourage overeating. 
they cause what's called hypothalamic inflammation, an inflammation of a certain area of your brain that regulates food intake, right? This can disrupt the body's homeostatic mechanisms and overstimulate the, the reward center of our brain, the area that causes us to seek things out, okay? can possibly disrupt our microbiome, which is the bacteria that live in us and on us. And when overconsumed, generally lead to fat gain, quite frankly. Okay, so consider this. The top six calorie sources in the U.S. diet today are grain-based desserts like cake, cookies, yeast breads, chicken-based dishes, and you know it's probably not, you know, roast chicken with broccoli and brown rice, sweetened and alcoholic beverages, and pizza. These are not what you would consider ancestral meals or ancestral foods nor foods that any nutrition expert, expert, regardless of their dietary ideology, would ever recommend. So when proponents of the paleo diet claim that our modern Western diet isn't healthy for us, they are 100% correct. But again, this evidence does not actually mean that the paleo diet is therefore the answer. Okay. Beyond just comparisons to our modern Western diet, there looms another question. Is paleo really paleo? Is the paleo diet recommended today really what Paleolithic man ate? Or is it a modern construct that merely mimics what we believe Paleolithic man might have eaten? Okay, the truth is, there's no such thing as a single Paleolithic diet. Our ancestors lived pretty much all over the world in incredibly diverse environments, eating incredibly diverse diets. Beyond the Hiwi and the Kitavans, the very few surviving hunter-gatherer populations subsist on a wide variety of diets, right? From the African Kung, who eat lots of nuts and seeds, to the relatively balanced intake of the Hasda, okay, they have a nice mix of meat and fish, root vegetables and fruit. And you have like the Inuit of the Arctic, right, who eat tons and tons of meat and high fat meats and very, very few vegetables. These foraging diets are diverse and probably reflect the widely varying diets of our prehistoric ancestors, simply because what people ate depended on where they lived. You ate mostly plant-based in the tropics and mostly animal-based in the Arctic, and then everything in between. While we don't know exactly what Paleolithic man ate, it is clear that throughout history, the human diet varied immensely by geography, season, and opportunity. Right? If you came across a kill, you ate it. If you didn't, couldn't find food, you didn't eat. That's how it worked. Okay. Still, in most cases, primal diet certainly included more vegetables and fruits than most people eat today. So if we want to be healthier, we should do what our ancestors did and eat a lot of those, right? Yeah, probably, but not necessarily for the reasons that paleo proponents recommend. First of all, most modern fruits and vegetables are nothing like the ones our ancestors ate. Early fruits and veggies were often bitter, much smaller, tougher to harvest, and could even be toxic. Over time, we've bred plants with the most preferable traits, the biggest fruits, the prettiest colors, the sweetest flesh, fewest natural toxins, and most importantly, right, the largest yields. We've also diversified plant types, creating new cultivars from common origins, right, such as hundreds of cultivars of potatoes or tomatoes from a few ancestral varieties. Likewise, most modern animal foods aren't the same either. Beef, even if it's grass-fed, okay, is not the same as wild bison steak or, or venison and so on. It doesn't make modern produce or modern meat inherently good or bad. It's just different from anything that was available in the Paleolithic era. So the claim that we should eat a diet rich in vegetables, fruits, and meats because we are evolved to eat precisely those foods is a little bit suspect. The ones we eat today didn't even exist in Paleolithic times. Okay, so we've covered much, though not all, 
of the evolutionary theory of the paleo diet and see where some of it falls flat. Now let's take some time to dig into some of the specific food groups paleo encourages you to avoid to see if those hold any water. First, let's start with my personal favorite, dairy, right? Paleo proponents have a litany of reasons to encourage people to avoid dairy. It's said to be acid producing and to increase inflammation, you know, cause mucus production. It's claimed that the research doesn't show that dairy actually supports bone health. And finally, that we've only been consuming dairy for roughly 8,000 years, just a blink of time of our existence on earth and really too short of a time for humans to adapt to consuming it regularly, since about 40 to 60% of the world is actually lactose intolerant. Unfortunately for paleo advocates, but fortunately for everyone else, these arguments don't really hold up when you look at the full body of evidence on dairy. Because they actually show a different picture. It shows that dairy is not acid producing, and that the acid-based balance theory doesn't really hold water, right? There's been some really cool research on that in the past five, 10 years or so, um, really kind of debunked that initial interesting um, and, and really cool conceptual idea, but just doesn't hold water, okay? Dairy consumption, especially when it provides people's needed calcium, does support bone health, right? Controlled trials have shown that. Now, while 40 to 60% of the people worldwide are lactose intolerant, that means that 40 to 60% of the world's population have lactase persistence and therefore can consume lactose, right? And finally, it's important to keep in mind, dairy is a nutrient-dense food, right? It's rich in high-quality protein, conjugated uh, conjugated linoleic acid, riboflavin, calcium, phosphorus, vitamin B12, potassium, vitamin K2, MK4, and more, right? However, to people from affluent countries who eat well and get adequate sources of these nutrients from other foods still need dairy? No, probably not, okay? And clearly, these people who are lactose intolerant or have dairy allergies shouldn't consume dairy, right? It probably shouldn't be a food group. It's simply a food that provides macronutrients and micronutrients just like any other food okay it's not necessarily bad or dangerous it's not necessarily required but it is a rich source of many really helpful nutrients that can be hard to get otherwise which is why it's so often recommended but it's not a required food right but it's not a dangerous food for most either next on the neolithic on the neolithic foods to avoid list are grains right they argue that much like dairy our ancestors diets could not have included a lot of grains and again, that the past 10,000 years of agriculture isn't enough time to adapt to this new food. As well as other claims, you know, much like dairy, it causes inflammation, it causes GI damage and leaky gut and things of that nature. And again, this evolutionary argument is compelling, but it still doesn't hold up to scrutiny, okay? To begin with, some recent studies using some really advanced analytical methods, which I won't bore you to tears with because you have to be a botanist to truly understand them and appreciate them, I guess, have discovered that ancient humans may have begun eating grasses and cereals before the Paleolithic era even began. So up to three or even four million years ago did our human ancestors start eating grasses and grains. Further research has revealed granules of grains and cereal grasses on stone tools starting at least 105,000 years ago. Meanwhile, grain granules on grinding tools from all over the world suggest that Paleolithic humans made a widespread practice of turning grains into flour as long as 30,000 years ago. In other words, the idea that Paleolithic humans never ate grains and cereals appears to be not only an exaggeration, just flat out wrong, okay? So clearly, humans have been consuming grains in some form or fashion for millions of years, right? Does this mean they're healthy, right? Couldn't they still promote inflammation and cause problems? 
They could. So that's a fair point, right? So while glutinous grains do cause inflammation for people with celiac disease, this does not hold true for the population as a whole. In fact, observational research has suggested that whole grains may decrease inflammation, but refined grains may increase inflammation. In other words, other words, the processing may cause the problems on the grain itself. However, controlled trials consistently show that eating grains, whether whole or refined, does not affect, affect inflammation at all. And one recent trial showed that whole grains might actually lower inflammation. So, at worst, whole grains appear to be neutral for most people when it comes to inflammation, and potentially even helpful. To me, it's important to view grains through a critical but unbiased lens. Is the problem really from people eating a reasonable amount of some high-quality sprouted grains, right? Does anybody think that two pieces of Ezekiel toast is the reason why your clients can't lose weight? Probably not, right? Or is it more likely that it's grains can often be a delivery vehicle for much more energy-dense, calorie-dense foods, right? What actually seems more plausible? That the grain in and of itself is the problem? Or that it can be highly refined and turned into all kinds of wondrous snacks and cakes and things of that nature, right? Pies. It's not necessarily the grain. It's what it gets turned into and then used to make in further foods. Okay. So finally, we get to legumes. Things like beans, peanuts, peas, lentils, right? The arguments against legumes are much the same as against grains. Too little time in the human diet. Inflammatory and harmful to the GI tract. Full of anti-nutrients, etc. So, let's turn to the research. The idea that legumes are not widely available or were not widely consumed in Paleolithic times, like the argument that humans didn't eat grains in that same era, is quite simply false, right? In fact, a 2009 review revealed that not only did our Paleolithic ancestors eat legumes, they were actually an important part of their diet. Even our primate cousins, including chimpanzees, eat beans. Legumes have been found at Paleolithic sites all over the world, and in some cases were determined to be the dominant type of plant food available. In fact, the evidence for wild legume consumption by Paleolithic humans is as strong as it is for any plant food, including fruits and vegetables. On the whole, consumption of legumes and grains, whole grains especially, um, and especially legumes in this case, have consistently been found to improve our health, including improved blood lipids, better glucose control, less inflammation, and lower risk of stroke and coronary heart disease. Eliminating these important foods from our diet to conform to anybody's dietary ideology is probably a poor idea. Okay, maybe our ancient ancestors did eat a little bit of grain and some legumes, so the argument from history doesn't really hold. But paleo proponents also offer another reason to avoid these foods. their high concentrations of so-called anti-nutrients, which supposedly make their nutritional value, you know, useless, worthless, unabsorbable. These anti-nutrients mainly being lectins, protease inhibitors, and phytic acid. There's just one problem with this argument. It's wrong, okay? Research suggests that the benefits of legumes, and to a lesser extent, whole grains, far outweigh their anti-nutrient content, especially since cooking eliminates most anti-nutrients and their effects. So let's call these individually, starting with lectins. As noted before, lectins are dramatically reduced by cooking. For example, Raw kidney beans contain anywhere from 20,000 to 70,000 lectin units, while fully cooked beans usually contain between 200 and 400 units. Cooking also eliminates most of the negative effects of lectins, such as gas, bloating, diarrhea, and other GI distress. The body uses lectins to achieve many basic functions, 
including cell-to-cell adherence, inflammatory modulation, and programmed cell death. In addition, research suggests that cooked lectins may reduce tumor growth. Now it's true that some people seem to be more easily bothered by lectins, or might be what we call lectin intolerant, and eating enormous amounts of lectin-rich foods can be problematic. But just by cooking your lectin-rich foods and having a varied carb intake can nullify this for most people. Okay, next up, protease inhibitors, which block the action of protein-digesting enzymes interfering with your protein absorption. However, the story of protease inhibitors follows the same path as lectins. Cooking dramatically reduces their numbers and also eliminates most negative effects. Further research also suggests that cooked protease inhibitors might be anti-inflammatory and anti-carcinogenic. Again, some people might be more easily bothered by protease inhibitors, and just like with lectins, eating enormous amounts could be problematic. But the solution remains the same. Cook your protease inhibitor-rich foods and have a varied carb intake, and you're unlikely to have any real problems here. But what about the king of all anti-nutrients, phytic acid, right? It's mostly the, my, it's the most well-known and most debated of these so-called anti-nutrients. And it's true that grains, nuts, and legumes are rich sources of this anti-nutrient, that it can bind to minerals such as zinc and iron and prevent their absorption. It was also a known cause of dwarfism in ancient Egypt as the population subsisted largely on unleavened bread, which is loaded with phytic acid. But is that, in and of itself, enough reason to avoid grains and legumes? No, not necessarily. Today we eat leavened bread, right, which dramatically lowers phytic acid content. And while phytic acid can be toxic if we eat too much of it, in more reasonable amounts, it may actually provide health benefits. Okay, for example, it might have antioxidant activity, protect DNA from damage, be a probiotic, meaning it'll actually function as food for the bacteria in our GI tract, it might have anti-cancer properties, and it can reduce the bioavailability of things like uh, heavy metals like cadmium and lead, which is incredibly beneficial right? In a mixed diet of other nutrient-dense whole foods, phytic acid and other anti-nutrients are unlikely to cause problems. In fact, nearly all foods contain anti-nutrients as well as nutrients, particularly plant foods, right? For example, incredibly healthy foods like spinach, Swiss chard, many berries, dark chocolate, sweet potatoes are all sources of something called oxalate, an anti-nutrient that actually inhibits calcium absorption and is thought to contribute to kidney stones, right? Green tea and red wine contain tannins, another anti-nutrient that inhibits zinc and iron absorption, and so on and so on. The list would go on in perpetuity. Overall, phytic acid and other anti-nutrients probably have a sweet spot, just like most nutrients. Eating none or a small amount might be inconsequential. Eating a moderate amount seems to actually be good for you. Eating too much could hurt you, right? So the big thing is keep the big picture in mind. Have a varied carbohydrate intake of grains, legumes, potatoes, sweet potatoes, fruit, and you'll be just fine. Let's shift gears a bit, okay, and get back to evolution for a minute. In paleo circles, it's sometimes said that the, while the world has changed in innumerable ways in the past 10,000 years, our genes have changed very little, right? And further, that we really only thrive in a world with similar conditions to the Paleolithic era. Quite frankly, this is not how evolution or genetic expression works. If humans could only thrive in an environment similar to the ones our ancestors lived in, our species would never have been able to adapt to the constantly changing environment that we live in, right, on planet Earth. And examples of the ways we've evolved in the past 10,000 years abound. For example, over the past 8,000 years or so, about 40 to 60% of us had developed the capacity to consume dairy for a lifetime. 
as a species, we're evolving a mutation whereby we continue to produce the lactase enzyme to break down lactose for far longer periods than our ancestors ever could. And while it's true that not everyone can digest lactose well, more of us can do so than ever before. And an interesting side note, studies have shown that even people who don't digest lactose well are capable of consuming moderate amounts of dairy, tolerating an average of 12 grams of lactose at a time, right? The amount of lactose in one cup of milk with few to no symptoms. Now, of course, people with lactose intolerance fall on a bell curve. Some people smell lactose and have GI distress. Others can handle higher amounts and be okay. In addition, over the past about 6,000 years or so, humans have evolved the ability to have blue eyes. Seriously. Paleolithic man did not have blue eyes. In human history, it's a relatively recent phenomenon. Additionally, the emerging science of epigenetics shows that a blueprint alone isn't enough. Right? Genes can be switched off or switched on by a variety of physiological and environmental cues. And that this may be far, far more important than, than just our genetic code alone. Our genes produce only the enzymes necessary to break down things like starch, simple sugars, most proteins and fats. They aren't well adapted to cope with a steady influx of highly processed foods today. Chicken nuggets, tater tots, ice cream, foods filled with all kinds of unpronounceable words. So how is it that we can still digest our food, albeit imperfectly at times? Well, we can actually thank the trillions of bacteria in our gut. These friendly bugs, critters, interact with our food in many ways helping us break down tough plant fibers, releasing bound phytonutrients, antioxidants, and assisting us to assimilate many important compounds. And our microbiome can evolve at an astounding rate. Just one meal can change the bacterial balance in our GI tract, and a few days in a diet can dramatically change the population. While we don't have direct evidence of which bacterial species thrived in Paleolithic intestines, we can be pretty confident that our ancestors' microbial communities would not exactly match our own because of how rapidly they evolve. And for us, that's a good thing, right? Helps to explain why, even if the ancient human diet didn't include dairy or legumes or grains, which it did, and other relatively modern agricultural products, we still might thrive on such a diet today, at least with a little help from our bacterial friends. In fact, here are some fascinating ways that our microbiome continues to evolve, right? The bacteria in our gut can actually break down many of those allegedly dangerous modern food components for us. For example, some Japanese people host unique bacteria that can help them digest seaweed more effectively. And many people can alleviate symptoms of lactose intolerance by eating yogurt or other probiotic-rich foods that actually pr provide us lactose-digesting bacteria. So even if you don't naturally break down lactose well, it's possible, through the right combination of foods and or probiotic supplements, to persuade the bacteria in your gut to do this job on your behalf. What's more, the same strategy can also address gluten intolerance, right? Recent research shows that some bacteria actually produce enzymes that break down gluten as well as phytic acid, reducing any, inf an, uh, any inflammatory or anti-nutrient effects they might have. So humans in and of ourselves don't have the enzymes to break down some of these things, especially phytic acid. We don't, we don't actually have the phytase enzyme, but there are certain bacteria that can end up in our GI tract who do produce that enzyme and can basically break down phytic acid and things like gluten for us, which is pretty cool. So no matter how you slice it, the paleo proponents' evolutionary and nutrient arguments just don't hold up. But that doesn't mean that the diet itself is necessarily bad. Maybe it's a good diet for completely different reasons than people have proposed or are led to believe. To find out if that's so, a number of researchers have been putting paleo diets to the test with controlled clinical trials, right? the only way to really know. And so far, the results are promising, though incomplete.
Let's check some of them out. Perhaps the best known of these researchers is Dr. Stefan Lindeberg, right? The guy who also studied the Kidavon Islanders. He and his colleagues have conducted two clinical trials testing the efficacy of the paleo diet. In the first, they recruited diabetic and pre-diabetic volunteers with heart disease and placed them on one of two diets. A paleo diet focused on lean meat, fish, fruit, veggies, starchy root vegetables, eggs, and nuts, or a Mediterranean diet focused on whole grains, low-fat dairy, vegetables, fruit, fish, oils, and margarine. Kind of a red flag with that one, but we'll, we'll move on. After 12 weeks, the Mediterranean group lost body fat and saw an improvement in markers of diabetes. Four of the nine participants with diabetic blood sugar levels at the beginning had normal levels by the end, right? It's a very impressive result. People were pretty pumped about it. But those in the paleo group failed, uh, fared significantly, not failed, fared significantly better. They lost 70% more body fat than the Mediterranean group and also normalized their blood sugars. In fact, all 10 participants with diabetic blood sugar levels at the beginning reached non-diabetic levels by the end. By any estimation, that is an incredibly astonishing result, right? Now, these volunteers were suffering from mild, really early cases of diabetes. So they went to, took a step further and see what would happen with long-term diabetics, okay? This study, using the same exact approach, showed that a paleo diet didn't cure them, but it did improve their condition significantly. But no one ended up as a non-diabetic. Other research has found the paleo diet is more satiating per calorie than a Mediterranean diet, and it improves blood glucose, blood pressure, and blood lipids. Right? Pretty good stuff. However, there is one key caveat. Protein, right? Like most low-carb trials, the macronutrients, especially protein, were not matched in these studies. The paleo group in these two studies ate a, and the other ones that also showed the other health benefits ate a lot more protein compared to the other diet groups. And plenty of protein helps us keep our lean mass dense and strong, right? Helps us stay lean, helps us feel satisfied by our meals, it increases thermogenesis, right? It can help maximize fat loss. So we're not just comparing apples to oranges here, right? We're kind of like comparing grains to meat in some ways, right? Literally. The paleo diet may indeed be the best plan, but it's hard to know for sure without direct comparisons that match macronutrients and calories. Okay, when we, since I kind of mentioned low-carb trials, you know, some early evidence of low-carb trials showed low-carb to be superior for weight loss, but when it was realized that people on low-carb diets were really on high-protein high diets that also had low carbs, when they matched protein intake, the differences were equal across the board. My suspicion is much the same would happen here, okay? Despite the faulty evolutionary theory it's based on, in the end, the paleo diet likely gets more right than it gets wrong, right? Paleo-style eating emphasizes whole foods, lean proteins, veggies, fruits, nuts, seeds, and other healthy fats. It's a massive improvement over the average Western diet. It's been extremely effective for improving several chronic diseases, right? That alone is a huge plus. It's made people more aware of how processed and crappy a lot of our 21st century food is, right? And mindfulness and awareness is one of the most important things when it comes to making food improvements. However, we need to be more rigorous, or we need more rigorous and carefully matched trials before we can reach any definitive conclusions, okay? So despite its obvious benefits over the typical Western diet, the paleo diet does have some flaws. The evidence for excluding dairy, legumes, and grains isn't strong. As a nutrition coach, I can't say it's a one-size-fits-all prescription. Certainly, some people should avoid dairy and gluten and keep legume and grain consumption more modest. 
but most of us can improve the way we look, feel, and perform without, conclu- without completely eliminating these foods, right? The evolutionary arguments don't hold up. The human species is simply, isn't simply a collection of adaptations to life in the Paleolithic era. We are an ever-evolving accumulation of inherited characteristics and microorganisms that have been switched, reconstructed, lost, and reclaimed since the first organisms came to life on Earth. This evolution has continued over the past 10,000 years and will continue throughout the rest of our existence. In the broader sense, strictly following a list of good and bad or allowed and not allowed foods tends to be problematic for most people. Generally, this approach leads to anxiety or all and all or nothing thinking, right? Maybe it makes us feel more confident and falsely sure of ourselves in the short term because there's less thinking to do, but it's less effective over the long term because ultimately it makes it hard to stick to. And following an approach consistently is fundamentally the most important thing. This may explain why we're seeing the paleo diet itself evolve, right? Many paleo advocates have recently come to appreciate and encourage the addition of moderate amounts of starch, albeit a more limited variety of options than I would prefer, as well as things like some dark chocolate, red wine, and some non-grain spirits like tequila, and even maybe a little bit of grass-fed dairy, depending on who you ask. These additions make life much more pleasant. They make healthy eating more attractive and achievable, right? You don't have to be that guy or that girl at social events or family parties. In fact, this new quote-unquote leniency may partly explain why the paleo diet continues to gain traction in mainstream nutrition circles. Because in the end, moderation, sanity, and your personal preferences are more important than any specific food list, anti-nutrient avoidance, or evolutionary theory. So what can you do with this information? First, consider the good things about ancestral lifestyles. This includes the fresh food, fresh air, lots of movement, good sleep, and a strong social network, right? How could you get just a little bit of these in your life today? Think about how you can move along the spectrum from processed 21st century life and food to choices that are a little more in tune with what your ancient body needs and loves. Learn a little bit about your ancestors, right? Evolution's cool. Dig into your roots. Where did your people come from? What were their ancestral diets like? Keep it simple and sane. Doing a few things pretty well, like getting adequate protein, extra veggies, and quality sleep is much better than trying to get a lot of things quote-unquote perfect. Stay critical and informed. Avoid dogmatic or cultish thinking, right? Be skeptical, look for evidence, question things, right? Primal eating is a compelling idea and may turn out to be more or less right, but just stay open-minded as you consider all the options. And that's it, guys. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Okay, everyone, that's it for this week's edition of Precision Nutrition's The Complete Fitness Professional Podcast. For more information about how to become the complete fitness professional yourself and for some awesome free nutrition and coaching resources, come visit us on the web at www.precisionnutrition.com. You could also visit us on Facebook or on Twitter at InsidePN. Talk to you next time.